Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode. At episode number five, the podcast dons a new name. It's, it's now Introflecting Life with Michael Palmieri. Let's see how long this one sticks for. But on to the podcast. So today we have Alex Valentine from the BU crew. For this episode, we talk about personal goals, goals on different time scales, where they come from, and how they change. We touch on a lot of things that were discussed in some of the other podcasts, such as True Self, Values, and Introspection. We also breached some new territory by discussing religion and art. Um, so before we jump into it, I want to give a caveat emptor about this episode. Uh, so I recently moved my recording studio from the office into the garage, and over the course of that move, my audio setup was pretty compromised. I think I've finally figured it out, but the recording that I did with Alex suffers from some less than an ideal audio. Um, so there, there are some dubbing over that I did to hopefully make it a little bit better. Um, another point is that I made a huge amateur mistake and forgot to hit the record button when we first started the interview. So Alex was gracious enough to try and recreate the magic of those original 15 minutes um, by re-recording another version of it, and I uh, spliced it in so hopefully it fits seamlessly. And now that I have uh, hopefully lowered the expectations, let's get it. I want to first of all thank you, Alex, for coming on to the podcast. Very excited to have you here today. I'm going to um, throw some questions your way and see what answers come out of it, what areas we go into. We don't know where this is going. We have a general idea, um, but we're going to follow whatever threads come up, the interesting ones. So first question that I have for you is um, is if you were to tell... The narrative story of your life in terms of goals at each stage how would you go about telling that story yeah this is you know it's funny this is a good time to be asking me that question because uh after just finishing my residency interviews i kind of have a nice elevator pitch for the story of alex valentine to tell my interviewer so it's good timing i i you know i was raised in southern new hampshire by my two parents, and they were really loving, really supportive. Uh, I feel like I really couldn't have chosen a better childhood, to be honest. Um, you know, we felt supported. We never had a lot of big stressors. We weren't financially stressed. Um, we took lots of vacations. You know, I was able to participate in lots of sports and um engage with my neighbors and the community in a way that kind of made me feel like I was, I was part of something bigger than me. And I just, I loved, I loved having that feeling. And I think my parents did a good job raising my brother and I into the people that we've become and uh, into, you know, some people that will be able to handle a ever changing world. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I think in terms of goals, a lot of how I was raised had to do with, you know, working hard, uh, committing yourself to uh, your work. And when I was a kid, you know, that was all about school. So, you know, really being a, a good student, studying hard uh, and and engaging with class in a way that was sort of educational, but also really fulfilling. So I think they, they sort of helped show me that learning can be fun. And that's what's one of the great things about being alive is learning new things and I think I like to think of my parents as sort of lifelong learners, and I think they sort of shared that with my brother and I. So, um, 
you know, in addition to, to enjoying learning, like really understanding how important it was to, to, you know, put in the hours, work hard, do my homework, um, show up for class, pay attention. And I think that was a big part of, honestly, somewhat, one of the big parts of how I oriented myself in the world and made my goals was like, I, I should be a good student and I should work hard. I should get good grades and do what I can to, you know, get into good classes and then later in high school, get into a good college and hopefully that'll lead me to get a good job. So I think a lot of my goals were oriented around um, working hard and sort of getting good grades. Um, I also was sort of understanding the value of uh, being social and making connections with people around me. And, you know, when you're young, you know, you spend time with family often and, you you learn what it's like to uh, to have people in your life who are there all the time. You know, you see month after month or year after year and you learn the value of a family. I really loved beyond that, making friends and making these social connections with people in my neighborhood or at school. And that made me feel really good. And I, I sort of developed an, a, another set of goals that had to do with what it's like to connect with other people and spend time with them and care for them and uh, look out for them and have fun with them. You know, playing with your friends as a kid uh, is, is it's like the best. So that was a, that was another important thing for, I think my development and how I thought about goals in my life Uh, that I guess overall my goals shifted a bit uh, when I was a teenager and I got diagnosed with this autoimmune disorder and that and it, it's it's a serious disease and you know if I didn't get treated I definitely could have died so you know I'm thankful that I got the treatment I needed and I saw the doctors I needed and I'm I've been like pretty healthy overall and I'm still pretty healthy now which I'm grateful for but that that diagnosis changed a lot of my perspective as it does for a lot of patients because you you think more about your future and there's a lot of uncertainty because in the beginning when you're faced with a new diagnosis that you know nothing about as a young person, as a kid, you don't know anything about anything. You don't know what medicine is. You don't know how, uh, how the body really works, you know? And, and that was, that was definitely really scary. So I think that I had to reorient my perspective on life and think about what my immediate goals were, you know, did I just kind of want to get by day by day and like live every day like it was my last or did I want to, you know, deal with my disease and the treatments uh, as I as much as I could and then just continue to have bigger, longer term plans and still plan to, you know, work hard, go to college and try to get a job and kind of try to pretend like things are going to be okay. And that's kind of what I ended up doing. I think I just sort of adapted to the circumstances and thought, you know, I I, I'm really supported and I know that if things get bad, I would have a good support system around me to help me through tough times with friends and family. So I kind of figured, you know, I should do what I can to continue forward with my, my plan. So that's, that's what I ended up doing. And I kind of tried to use my diagnosis as a little bit of a opportunity to learn more about medicine and the body and science. And, you know, I got enrolled into some AP classes and, that got me interested in biomedical engineering, which ended up being my major in college. So it actually kind of drove a lot of my interests as well. And then I guess, you know, beyond high school, college, uh, you know, my goals as a person have oriented towards, you know, having a family. I think in college, as I built more of my 
frame of what the world is like and where I might fit into it. I thought more about what it would be like to have a family, to have a wife and maybe to have kids. And uh, that was important. And until I took a couple steps after college in finding jobs and then eventually going to med school and and had a longer term plan of what my life might actually look like in my 20s and my 30s, then I started to think more like, okay, I want this to happen at, you know, at a certain point, like, you know, by whatever age or by the time I'm in residency or whatever. So I started to think more about having a family as, as one of my goals too. And I think with, um, with my partner, Gabby, you know, I think a lot of my goals have been oriented towards us together as a unit, like as a team and not just thinking like, what can I do to, to meet my goal? I think about like, what can we do together to meet goals, meet, meet our goals as a couple and as like a, as a team. So that's also been something I've, I've thought a little bit about. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny, you know, I've been in terms of other bigger goals, when you think about life and family and, you know, as you get older and death is, um, is, uh, kind of coming, like people often reflect on their life goals and think about what, what regrets they might have or what they wish they would have done differently or how they want their death to go. I actually ended up doing a, um, you know, I was talking about the death talks, um, which is a podcast project that I did. It was like a single set of interviews that I did with my family, uh, recently for a med school class. And I talked to my brother, mom, dad, and grandma about just end of life ideas. Like what, how have they experienced death in their, uh, life so far? What else they've thought about, about what they think their death might be like, like what, what is, what do they think a good death is? What is a bad death? So I had these like really intimate conversations with my family members. So I've been, that kind of drew us a little bit closer, which was really nice, but I, that put a lot of ideas in my mind about bigger goals and how you want to contribute to the world, uh, before you die. And that, and, and also just coming to an understanding of your own mortality. Everyone has to do that, hopefully one way or another. Uh, and that, that definitely did that for me. And I think hopefully did it for my family members as well. I think I've given you a lot to go yeah. off for now. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of different directions. I just, I just monologued. <laughs> that was a lot of great information. Uh, I, I want to ask the question uh, because you, you said that your goals in the beginning, your your values were instilled by your parents in order to get good grades and to work hard. Um, it wasn't a goal that you necessarily decided on. It, it was kind of one that you adopted in a way but when it came to um socializing and making a lot of friends that sounded like one that came up organically can you just do you remember how that one formed yeah i think i it it did form a little more organically in those moments that you share on your own when you you know make friends and you're making memories with people uh i think you you I came to learn that the value of friendships and of socializing through those like organic connections that I was making with my friends and being living in one town throughout my whole childhood, I really had the ability to build friendships and experiences with individuals over a longer period of time. You know, people who might move around a lot during childhood might not have that 
luxury, but I was lucky to be able to be in one place. So I have friends that I've known since I was like basically born and uh, people who I have met in middle school and high school that I still talk to now and I'm 28. So the, that I think was a big part of how I learned the value of socializing and of building friendships and connecting with people. But also, I mean, I do think that I did still model a lot of my behavior based from my parents. You know, I think my dad is really, really social. He's pretty outgoing and he's just, he's like very known in our town. And I think he loves that. I think he loves being a part of the community. He sits on a couple of the different town committees and is really aware of like who's doing what, where and when in our town and in our area. And that is a part of his business because he's a realtor. So it's, it's really helpful for him to know like what businesses are coming or going in a space or what residents and are coming and going or what laws are changing when it comes to people moving in and out of the town. So I think he, he enjoys learning and engaging with those ideas because of his work, but also just because he's a really friendly guy and he just, he loves talking to people. He loves hearing people's stories. He loves just like, he loves like, just like shooting the shit. That's just, he, it's his favorite, you know, he'll be in line at the bank and he will talk up every person that he comes to in contact with if it'd be good. Um, and I think I saw that and I, I model a lot of my hate my behavior based on that because I saw how he treated other people and he treated them with respect and with kindness and regardless of who they were or how they acted, if they were treating him with respect, he would always treat them with respect. And I, I loved seeing that. And I thought it was a, he was a really great model for me. In terms of other values, I was also thinking about um, something that my mom modeled for me that my dad didn't as much, which is humor. I think learning a sense of humor, uh, learning how to have a good sense of humor about things was so, so key to my development, too, because... It is a coping mechanism for really stressful situations. It is an amazing equalizer and tension reliever in a variety of situations. It's fun. And I, I just love that humor is such a special concept as humans because it's not really – you can't really define what's funny. You can't just say this is the definition of what's funny. You just have to put it out there and see if people laugh or see if people smile. And that's how you sort of define something that's humorous or funny. And I, I really love that because it's something that is inherently defined by interactions between people. And I, I just love that. So I think my mom really, uh, she has a really quick, dry sense of humor. And we have a good, I think we have a good history of, you know, backing, going back and forth and kind of quick quips and uh, making jokes with each other all the time, being really sarcastic and, dry and witty and that kind of stuff I don't think my dad picked up on as much but that was something that my mom really shared with me that I I really appreciated and she I think another uh, another value from that I picked up from her more than my dad I think was like a a curiosity that you know she she was always like asking deeper questions and always thinking a little bit harder about what was going on uh, whether that came to me like what was going on in my life or what was going on in the world and I think we had some really like interesting deep conversations about lots of things about, you know, the world or society or politics or, um, you know, maybe things about I was, I was learning in school. Uh, she was a trained engineer when she, uh, was, uh, was working in, uh, when she was younger. And I think that problem solving mindset really 
you know, stayed with her. I think it's a part of who she is and that was sort of passed on to me. So I think we, we loved approaching problems and talking through different things. Um, and I think that, that curiosity and problem solving mindset really stuck with me. And I think that's what drove me to be more interested in the sciences in high school and what led me to engineering and undergrad. Um, uh, and what led me towards research later in my later after graduating and then eventually medical school as well. So I think those are some important values that I picked up from my parents as well. So some were more organic, some were definitely imbued from my parents. Wow. So you have some amazing role models. That, that is, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for it. I I'm so, ha- I'm so grateful to have like parents who like were caring and loving and were there for me. And I think showed me a good set of, lifestyles to model myself off of for sure do you feel like them being great role models is something that you want to um, instill as a parent when you create your own family is that a a a method that you want to enact yourself yeah and i think i've seen as you know that thing where you get older and you start to think about your parents more as uh as, as adults and not as these um as uh these sort of untouchable uh, figures, demigods, right? Yeah, that you think of as a kid um, when you're like, oh no, they're human. They have problems. They mess up a lot of the time and that's okay. Yeah, I think that connection has made me realize that I don't think they, I don't think a lot of parents are necessarily super intentional about the values that they convey. They just are who they are. And that is instilled in how they parent. So your personality and your values, whether you want them to or not, are going to be what helps build your parenting style and helps uh, reflect on your kid. So I think that's definitely what happened for them. And I acknowledge that will happen for me, too. I think I can think about how different parenting styles in terms of like uh, education and behavior and punishment and reward and I can think about how those things will affect them which I think there are definitely better ways to go about that that are like well documented and studied but in terms of the values that I've definitely thought about how I live my life will just inherently be reflected onto any children that I have uh, in a way that I can't I don't know if I can really control so I should just sort of embrace it (laughs) Is there any value that you have now that your parents didn't model or instill in you? Um, yeah, I get, well, I, my first thought was related to all of the positive aspects of their, what they modeled for me. And then some of the, I think the, less helpful aspects like I think there's like a certain amount of like passive aggression that I have picked up from my mom and uh my dad has I think a level a some level of closed-mindedness or like unwillingness to continue to uh to continue to ask questions and like open his mind to other perspectives that I think just like being kind of set in his ways that I think um also will have been reflected onto me so being aware of those i think i've tried to build a value of um 
Well, I guess just from that description, do you, that um, closed-mindedness and uh, uh, what was the one that came from your mom? Passive aggression. Passive aggression. Um, do you feel like those are still a part of you, or ha- have you been have you used your awareness of them to minimize the amount of them that express themselves in your behavior? Yeah, as I recognize this, which I think is more of a recent adult acknowledgement on my part in terms of recognizing that and uh, and those parts of myself, I think I've tried to be aware of it and catch myself and be more expressive and direct with, you know, personal conflicts, anything that comes up, in, you know, with part with my partner or um or with friends, I, I have been, tr- I have tried to be like more aware of that and be more direct with things kind of, I feel like what my mom is not good about is like having like real conversations, like upfront, just l- like kind of laying it all out on the table and then ha- ex- expressing emotions and knowing that that's okay. And then dealing with them and moving forward. So I, I think I've, I've, that's actively been a part of my more recent like personal growth i'd say in the past like two years that i have definitely been actively working on and trying to build into it like a more core value for myself which if i have to think about a a phrase i guess would be um uh i think just like expressing and embracing emotion in general i think is is really what it comes down to which is you know I am not someone who experiences or expresses any extreme of of the emotional spectrum, despite the fact that I'm like anyone else and sometimes I have them like inside my head. So that's something that I think I have learned from my parents that I've tried to work against and I've tried to build for myself because that's not a healthy way to deal with emotions. It's not. It's not sustainable. It's not a good idea to bottle yourself up and pretend like things are okay when they're not so and it's okay to lash out it's okay to cry it's okay to uh to talk about your emotions with people it's okay to go to therapy it's okay to ask for help all these things that i think i don't i hadn't really come to terms with until more recently and um I wish I had more kind of like real honest talks with my parents and the, the death talks thing I think were, was a good foray into that direction. But yeah, now that that was a good, that was a good question and a good way to elicit what I'm thinking. Cause I think that is the main, probably one of the main values that I, that have come out of understanding some of the, some of the less helpful values that I might've picked up is trying to counter those with expressing and experiencing emotions in a healthier way. How did you go about identifying that they were, um, I would say negative values or they didn't, they weren't as beneficial to you as other values. how did you go about identifying that? I think once I saw your parents are sort of the, for me, they were like the model adult that I would use as a benchmark to compare other adults to. And once I saw other adults who were not uh, suppressing their emotions always, who were really open and honest and raw about some of their stories and 
would open up to me. I think it was a lot of like doctors who I talked with, honestly, and who I've met in med school. Once I saw those as comparisons, I was like, oh, okay, so not all adults are like this. Not everyone uh, has like this, you know, mainly like more like maladaptive defense mechanism in terms of dealing with their emotions by kind of just like holding them all inside and and not not expressing them or or talking about hard things or having having honest hard conversations so maybe it was maybe it was that comparison i guess i'm curious about so you saw this in your parents this one behavior and then in other adults you saw a different behavior and it was a good interaction that you had with it where you were kind of taken aback like oh interesting you're expressing your emotions and this this actually feels better or this mm-hmm. there there's uh there's more positive feedback in this way um in order to maybe get their point across or to resolve a conflict or to just have a better connection with you 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 saw that positive feedback and then once you recognized that said hmm, maybe the way that i was raised isn't the best way maybe there are alternative ways it's like yeah. kind of the scientific method in a bit like you had a hypothesis something countered it and saying hmm, is, is that really the best way to to live and then you reevaluate it hmm. right yeah and i guess a little post-processing here i think you know me building this narrative is not exactly how it played out when i think about yeah. it uh but what but one thing that i that came to mind as you were saying that is i think some of my experiences in med school where you're faced with like really, really grave situations and you have to have really serious conversations with patients, tell them bad news all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that gave another perspective where, you know, a couple of things like life is short. It's too short to hold your emotions in and to not tell people how you really feel. You will feel better. There's a tremendous relief with expressing yourself. It's human nature to do that. and 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 then I and I saw the the benefits of that in in a therapeutic setting. I think um, so. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever have you ever um, synthesized the two ideas of your being social, interacting with people, uh, creating a lot of relationships? Um, that exposes you to a lot of different personalities and way of ways of living Mm -hmm. life and behaving and thinking and you being a a very perceptive um, and open-minded person you're looking for the best behaviors to kind of model after and it's like you're doing an open survey you're doing a real open survey going out there and seeing what the best way to I guess react in the certain situation, but uh, in, in a grandiose way to live life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, for a while, I thought about myself as kind of a chameleon, where I would just fit myself and my behaviors into a whole range of social situations, save a couple extremes. And I think I prided myself on that. I, I liked having social groups in so many different facets of whatever community I was a part of, whether it was like BU undergrad or like after graduating or in med school. But, uh, and there's a part of that that I think I still enjoy, but it's, 
if you do, if you are always trying to serve the people around you, then you're not really going to develop an identity of your own. So I found myself kind of identifying and acknowledging that as the years have gone on and I've accepted, you know, these are some important things that I wouldn't really budge on. And these are some people who, based on like their behaviors and their values, I would not want to spend time with. And these are things, these are certain actions or activities that I wouldn't want to participate in. So I've, I think, slowly been closing my, my sphere of what, of sort of like what I value and therefore like who I would like spend time with. Um, and it just got like out of control. Like I couldn't be friends with everyone. Like I have like this, again, I think because my dad, I saw him as such a friendly guy. I just would love, I, there were times where I would just love to be friends with everyone. And that's just not how life works. And you, you will dilute, severely dilute the value of the friendships that you have. If you try to go out and connect with every single person who you see, so me I, acknowledging that I think took took a while to to carry that out and know that like there'll be plenty of people out there who won't like you and there who won't like me. There'll be plenty of people who uh, might think that I'm like a bad person or that I have like you know negative qualities or something, and that's okay because that's just that's that's what it's like to live you know as a human. Not everyone's gonna like you. That's part of it. So yeah, I I think I had to acknowledge that at some point. Mm-hmm. How do you find the the cutoff point where you're you're being open minded, you're being a chameleon, you're out there serving kind of everyone you you interact with, trying different, um, I guess versions of yourself. How do you know when to start solidifying and um, really building a foundation that is now more sturdier as you move between these different social groups. I think ironically, it was when I connected with a few individuals who I saw were so secure in their person and in their personality and their individuality that I saw that as like a really great, a really valuable thing to strive for. Um, so I think after encountering some people like that, I was like, that's, that's the way to, that's the way to, to build yourself as a, as a human. And um, it's really, it's fun and valuable to have social connections, um, but to maintain longstanding ones with a small group of people is in the end going to be a lot more, um, a lot more valuable and enjoyable, I think for everyone. So um I think seeing seeing a, a few individuals who embody that, I use that as like a model. Would you say that was your your hardest value to kind of let go of of trying to maintain as many social mm-hmm. connections as possible and then yeah, cutting them down. Yeah, I remember a conversation I had with some friends where we were arguing about like the definition of a friend. Oh, like okay. how do you like what what do you yeah like That's what do you Peter call podcast. oh was it yeah. yeah so like what do you call that and basically in the end my threshold for what a friend is was way lower than theirs and and it was kind of like they had other words like acquaintance or other classifications that they would put that maybe wouldn't have labels to them 
where it was like, yeah, like I know that person, but like I wouldn't call them my friend. And I feel like my, like what I would classify as friends was way, way broader than, than these people who I was talking to. And I think that's what it came, comes down to, um, which was kind of, kind of funny. So that's something that you talked with Peter, but mm-hmm. yeah, we, we had the idea of the social contract whenever mm. you're, you become so-called friends with somebody, you're um, having this unspoken agreement of what it means to be a friend with somebody. And mm-hmm. there's are these expectations that come about uh, that are implied or not discussed. And if you don't abide by them, even though you don't know them, that's where like friction comes up in the friendship. And mm-hmm. in those situations, um, th- there's a lot of attention and you like there's always the opportunity that you're going to lose the friend there if you don't know how to navigate that situation correctly um so that's funny that you brought up the idea of definitions um where what you call a friend was an acquaintance um uh, i think i'm gonna table that okay another one for definitions because i i think that is super important about definitions um Mm -hmm. I think a lot of a lot of disagreements and arguments that people have are because they have different definitions of what certain words mean. Like one example is respect. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to respect somebody when someone says respect your elders or respect me? Um, what are you actually asking for? And mm-hmm. so if somebody says, do you respect me? I'm like uh, your definition or my definition? Have we right. clarified it? Yeah. Um, but I think I think that's going to be for another episode. Yeah, um, that's that's a that's a good good theme to pull out for sure. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, um, so uh, back to the idea of of socializing as a way to find your uh, true self, to find mm-hmm. your solidified version of I. Do you think that there is a version that would work for everyone in a general sense or how how individual does each true self get i think it gets as individual as every person on the planet because there's a infinite number of experiences and occurrences that can happen and those all have really minuscule but in some you know like infinite amounts of contributions to someone's person so i think every every single true self is unique the someone's uh someone's identity and ability to associate with that identity is so fluid people i think everyone has different associations with their true self and their identity some might believe that it grows and flows and changes throughout their entire lifetime from being a baby to, you know, being an elderly person and dying to, um, I think other people who think that you kind of reach an equilibrium and then you stay your true self for the majority of your adult life. Um, you know, that, the, that core question of like, can humans change or is it like inherent in their nature? If someone's like, a you know, has a, um, like a villain in a movie that has like a really set of bad qualities, like can they change and come to the good side or are they always going to be bad? Um, 
I like to think of my identity as something that is always growing and evolving. And um, I think that's what's great about being human is that we can, we have the ability to do that and we can sort of adapt and change ourselves as things come up. If it's, uh, if it's a serious event, like a, a death or an illness or um, a, a, a philosophical epiphany or a, anything that could happen that would change, that would might, might give you a new outlook on life that, that should, you should be able to change and evolve your identity to that. So that's, I think that's how I think of that identity and true self. You're, you're saying that your, your journey through life has been, you would agree that you're on the, um, the fluidic moving, changing, um, identity of true self. And Mm -hmm. you're kind of flowing as if a river through a mountain or something. I don't know. I don't know why I just went yeah, there. sure. But, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but you're, but you are moving towards one certain direction, uh, a one solidified version of you. Uh, but you're still open to the idea that some epiphany might come around that might shift it in a completely different way. To tie this back to the beginning of our conversation uh, about goals uh, and the end goal. Um, would you say in this scenario you are fitting your yourself in the best way possible to your environment and now I want to say like everything that you've learned and everything every interaction that you've had is considered your environment in this case mm-hmm. um, like your 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 goal is to synthesize everything that you've experienced to create the best version of yourself given everything that you have experienced. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. And put put like that, it seems like this huge, monumental, uh, lifelong challenge. Uh, but, and I, I like I like hearing it in those words on a day-to-day basis, I think it, um, it comes down to relying on your, your values and, um, how you treat other people and what you think is important, doing the right thing and, uh, and hoping that you go in that direction, but knowing that there are always going to be things that are out of your control. So when I think about end goals or what I'm headed towards, um, I just try to, you know, I just want to leave, leave the the earth hopefully better off than I left it and make people feel better about themselves. And that's, that's how I'll kind of leave my, my impact. Um, but yeah, it like in a, we haven't talked about like religion or, um, or other like bigger guiding powers, but I feel like I just try to treat people like I would want to be treated, do the right thing, even if it's hard, have the hard conversations, even if they're difficult. And, um, and, uh, try to leave the past in the past and move forward on a day to day basis. That's, I guess how I usually live. Mm -hmm. 
on a day-to-day basis, it sounds like the goal for you is to live life by a set of maxims. Treat others the way you want to be treated, do the right thing even when it's hard, leave the past in the past, and leave the world in a better place than you found it. Do you know what led you to internalize uh, these specific maxims? Yeah, so, so go into any direction here. If it's, it's yeah, I, I mean, some of them I was raised Catholic, and that didn't really stick with me. Some of the more, um, some of the more karmic philosophies, I think, came from learning in school, learning about different religions, learning about Buddhism and Hinduism, and then thinking about how those might fit in. Um, thinking of the world as more like cyclical and. Um, knowing that like death might not be the end, but kind of just like another chapter and what it's like to, you know, be a living organism. Uh, but yeah, on a day-to-day basis, like kind of the, that basic like idea of karma, like doing good, putting good into the world and good will come your way, but just doing it because it's the right thing to do. I think that's, that's something that I kind of formed on my own, like as I matured into an adult and I've just tried to live by that all the time. You're doing something unique where you started in Catholicism, but then you moved to Buddhism um, and different religions and kind of taken what you what you've thought was the uh, most valuable from each. Like, again, it's this quality of you being um, able to adapt in any situation and take the valuable pieces from as many interactions as possible. That's pretty that's an awesome quality. Um, But. (laughs) Thank you. Um, that, that's that's unique to do that. Um, so, ha- have you in in your experiences with religions? Have you seen any major differences in uh, the end goals of each one? In do you have any insight as to what type of characters or behaviors that it uh, incentivizes? I mean, yeah, the most obvious to me is, you know, that I think so much of the Catholic religion is built on guilt and fear. And that that is something that whether people acknowledge it or not, I think really drives many people from it. Because if it is a if so much of the religion and all of your values and your guiding principles are about sin and what and how everyone sins and your life has to be built around making up for and repenting for those sins, then you are always living in a state of fear and guilt. And that's why there are so many people who come out Catholic who have, who are so repressed and have so many like really, like really poorly developed coping mechanisms uh, because it's what they were taught in church and by their parents. So that's one of that's the first thing that came to my mind when you said that, uh, and what that I think is is like so so harmful. And I think there are plenty of other things that push me away from the Catholic religion, but that was one that I think I identified pretty early on as just being wrong. It's just it was just unnecessary. I, it's not not a useful way to think about the world. What a what brought you out of it? Um, what allowed you to 
question those those ideas and come to your own mm. conclusions. Yeah, I think probably the fact that my parents weren't super strict about it, they weren't like dragging me to church every week at, throughout my childhood and into high school. And it was around that time when I started to disengage with the religion, seeing their interactions with the church and how they didn't seem like they were really super committed to it either. And it was almost more of like a family tradition thing. Like my dad did it and like he always went to church and, you know, his parents taught him that way and my mom's parents taught her that way so they wanted to carry that on but I could tell that it wasn't really something that they held true and like now like I don't know last time my parents went to church and it's 2021 you know when was the last time that they stepped in a church I can't remember so clearly it's not something that they really like set their values up on and maintain in that way doesn't mean that they don't have their own value systems that they've like sort of taken away from things right so that's that's uh that was probably a big part of it um, and probably also in a more academic sense when I was in school, like learning about atheism and um, scientific inquiry and um, questioning your uh, your life experiences and your values and um, uh, what kind of how can I build evidence to form my ideas? Um, all of that, maybe in like a more like juvenile sense, I think also helped kicked me kick me out of the mindset of like you know catholicism being like the the right direction for me um but you know it's it's hard because like there's i i described like a what i think is like one of the major negative aspects of catholicism but there are a, a lot of really amazing positives to catholicism and christianity in general um in the like really positive community building parts of what church does for people and how it can like really really save people who feel like they are alone and lost in life and gives them purpose uh and that that story has been told like millions of times like in america alone so i know that there is huge value in that and i'm glad that that exists for some people it just really wasn't what what i was able to identify with myself and maybe that's my privilege that I had the ability to find other coping mechanisms and I wasn't put in serious life circumstances that made me want to turn to that. Um, but. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's not, not, yeah, it's not, it's not all, it's not all bad. You know, there are benefits to it. It's just not for me, I guess. Yeah. I don't think I've ever. I I've I've been watching a lot of videos recently on um the future of advertising um with okay with the amount of data that is being collected and how everyone is putting their lives online uh you're getting a lot more personalized advertising even now um you like open up your Instagram and whatever you said in the last 20 minutes might be an ad for it. If you're saying that you need a new light fixture, if it's too dark in your room, you see might, you might right. see a, a, an ad for like some new GE light bulbs or something weird. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, one aspect of advertising uh, was getting those that have a low self impulse or are, or, or have high impulses and low self-control um to targeted target them with like uh gambling ads or 
with um, like sexual ads or something, something that um, something that gives some type of pleasure or reward, but you know isn't a good long term uh, way of going about it, and. and feels like as advertising gets better and ai is introduced that those that are uh, that are more desperate that are looking for some bit of pleasure or want to gamble because they don't have a lot of things in their life they might be taken advantage of or moving towards those more than they ever were in the past mm-hmm. um so it, what you brought up with um religion and how people who are uh, kind of desperate or in despair or don't have a purpose in life they come to religion to find that and they find a meaning for it and it, it gives them fulfillment um, that's a, a powerful mechanism that's a powerful structure that mm-hmm. exists um, to bring people towards that way now is it preying on the weak or is it giving those that are maybe at rock bottom a way out of it? Um, I I don't have a, an answer for that, but that that's what, what I thought of when, when you said that. Mm-hmm. Could there mm-hmm. be like advertising for churches <laughs> about people who are feeling despair to oh. open up a Bible and... Um, come to your to your local church we'll we'll fix things for you we'll we'll give you purpose if you're lost oh yeah i mean let me tell you when i drove to michigan and i saw billboards that said feeling lost jesus saves and then uh like a website like that exists that already exists unfortunately you know (laughs) what they've been doing for two thousand years yeah (laughs) once the printing press came out right (laughs) yeah but but Hmm. um but uh I also don't want to want want to paint like Catholicism or Christianity as like a thing that like, you know, people only in despair or like only like people who are maybe more susceptible to to like impulse problems like go to because there are plenty of people who like it's, you know, it's just kind of what they do. And there's like huge benefit to them um, independent Mm -hmm. of that. But I, I just think of like all of the 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 strife and the challenges that everyone encounters in their lives. Um, and how they deal with that and how often I think the church and religion is the way that people cope with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be what strengthens their connection to God or to Jesus. Um, or like we were saying, can like kind of kick off that might like bring them to the church for the first time. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a wide range of different institutions and what they're, what they're preaching. Um, what their incentives are like uh the mega churches where you're yeah if you give money then uh god will look favorably on you oh right yeah like people getting cash advances in order to do that Um, yeah it's it's more on the um negative side but oh yeah yeah that's straight up exploitation (laughs) yeah Yeah. but catholicism as uh uh, an answer to life um, done it in a way where uh, it is trying to help people and forgiving 
um, can can be very powerful, like uh, uh, confession. Yeah. Like, that that that's right there is ther- therapy, right? You're going into mm-hmm. the box and talking about your problems, and you have someone who is hopefully going to be uh, non biased. But I'm sure that there are priests that do take advantage of that situation. Um, right. And that is uh, its own way of dealing with things, because I guess it's a way for people to externalize their all of their negative emotions and their, quote, sins, right? Is they, they can say all the bad things that they did, and the priest says that you are forgiven for these things, and then they walk out and they feel better, where other people just kind of deal mm-hmm. with the things that they've done, and maybe they tell a friend or a family member or a therapist about it, and then they just have to deal with it like on their own without externalizing that to a a a religious figure you know Mm -hmm. yeah how do you feel about the the goal of salvation from the catholic church the i the idea of um moving away from sin and towards being uh as godly as possible of being saved um, do you see any parallels between that and Buddhism with the idea of nirvana? Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, I mean, I guess I always have been, I inscribe salvation, like you said, being saved as always being in relation to being saved from sin, right? So still always in relation to, like, I was born sinning, and I will, like, die sinning, and I, I am hoping to be saved from a life of sin, um, where I don't think that's the frame that Buddhism takes. It's more about there are positives and negatives to life, and I make good choices and bad choices, and as I make those, um, I am carried through multiple lifetimes um, through reincarnation to different levels of being and hopefully over time the amount of good that i put out will uh sort of accrue to the point where i reach nirvana um i'm like completely talking like bullshit because i haven't studied or thought about buddhism or hinduism in a really long time so i don't want to pretend like i know shit about these religions but these were like the super basic tenets that I remember learning when I was younger that I've kind of held on to, which is just mm-hmm. like good karma, bad karma, and reincarnation. Yeah. Hmm. It seems like there, there are two different methods in order to achieve um, community prosperity. Um, one method being the guilt method, uh, free from sin, uh, don't do any, don't do sin because... Uh, if you do, you won't make it to heaven. You won't be saved. You'll um, be judged. You'll be judged, right? Uh, and so it's a very personal, um, what do I get out of this situation? But then when you look at Buddhism, it, it becomes something larger than yourself because of the idea of reincarnation, where if you put good energy out into the world, or, um, yeah, I guess good energy is the way to, good acts, um, if you're, if you're being positive to community, when you are reborn, you may receive that good energy that you put out in a, in a different life. So now it's this thinking of instead of what is it? Well, I guess it's still what's in it for me, but you don't know who you're going to come back as. Mm-hmm. 
you could be right. anyone in, in this community. So in terms of, I guess, positive community building, Buddhism is like this blind, good energy anywhere because you may receive it because everybody is you in a way. Mm-hmm. But Christianity doesn't have that. It's, I need to do this in order to get to heaven for eternal bliss. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that that's a little bit how I have conceived of both of those. And I, maybe more like Hinduism than Buddhism, but um, uh, to, to build a community, I feel like you want the individuals to be grateful for the lives that they have and to look out for one another and to look out for their neighbors um, and know that as a community, you can, you can get through things um, together. But if you're all on your own looking out for just yourself, uh, things aren't going to go well. And that's, that's something else that came into my mind before when we were talking about goals, which is that um, something in terms of other personal goals, something that I hope to strive for is a greater community engagement on a personal level. Cause I think my main community is the school and I'm not going to have that when I graduate, I'll have the hospital and I'll have my coworkers and all the people at the hospital. I'll have the patients as a community, but Ann Arbor and my, the place that I live will be my new community. And I want to learn ways to engage with that and help kind of build the community, become a part of it, engage with it and hopefully help make it better in some way. And in a way that I don't think I've done a lot of now and recently living where I do now, I don't have a huge connection to South Boston and to Southie. There are parts of it that I like. There are parts of it that I really don't like. Uh, When I lived in Cambridge, I maybe felt more of a sense of community, but I wasn't like engaged with the town or with my neighbors or anything like that. So that's, that's another personal goal. I was thinking about speaking of community is like engage with my actual physical community, my actual neighbors in a way that is supportive and uh, helpful. Do you feel like you need to change any of your, your values in order to do that or to better do that? I think I can rely on them. I think I can rely on my values of, uh, of, of compassion and empathy to identify with other people and of curiosity and of valuing social supports and, uh, and looking out for doing the right thing, looking out for, for those around you. I think all of that will hopefully be what I rely on to actually carry out that, that engagement in the community how that actually plays out. I have no idea. I've been able to really use excuses, I think, in undergrad and then in my gap years when I was applying to med school and then in med school that, you know, I'm like too busy or I have other personal goals that I'm pursuing that I I won't engage in my community. But I think those are kind of poor excuses. And I have classmates who do a lot and really engage with their community in a way that I haven't. So that's something that I I hope to overcome. That's another thing that I feel like always comes up is what are the excuses that we come up with that prevent us from doing the right thing or doing what we know is the right thing? Um, 
That, that was something that I think I, I discussed with John about e- even just a, a simple like go out and work out you, even though you you know you want to do it you're going to feel better after doing it mm. but it takes energy and um, y- you're you don't feel motivated enough to do it I, I'm, I'm always curious about which equation are we using in our minds to come up with that what part of our brain has more weight or value being associated to it when we make these decisions yeah i've tried to think about it i think my and what i i know you well and i think the analytical part of your brain that that built that thought i think i really identify with that and in the end what i've tried to sum up for myself is the the mechanism doesn't really matter but how you feel at the end of each day i think is really what matters so however i get to it whatever that actually looks like do i kind of feel good about how i engaged with people how i what i did today do i feel good about that do i feel like it did some good in the world and if so great i'll keep on doing those things and if not then maybe i should think about what made me feel that way and how I can do less of that or uh, or what new things I could do that would make me feel more positively. Interesting. So do you do you do a lot of self-reflection at the end of each day? I wish I did more, but I do have a, I start I started last year a, a five year journal where I write a couple lines every day and I usually write just the facts. I just write what I did. But in my mind, I think I'm processing a bit about how I feel. And that helps me think in that way, I think. That's awesome. Yeah, I wish I journaled more, but this is still a big step for me for someone who never really journaled. So I'm glad Mm -hmm. that I'm using this. I've journaled a little bit more more recently. I have like an actual bigger journal that I will write out longer entries in, but that's kind of a like a work in progress. I'm still getting myself to that point. What what uh what was the f- first mover in this event that brought you to to journaling? Gabby is my girlfriend. <laughs> she's like I, I think a lot of these things have came from her. Honestly, I think she's like an incredibly expressive person and knows how to be in touch with her feelings and how to express them. She writes a lot. She does a ton of art, and I think that's one of her ways of expressing herself so i think i saw that and also she like literally gave me the book like she (laughs) bought it for me so it was her gift to me uh but it was like the encouragement to to kind of keep like filling it out and seeing the value that i saw in her when she journaled that i was like i should you know i should i should do this like for me you know not for anyone else and and it's been really really beneficial i wish i found it or stuck with journaling earlier and kind of made that a regular practice. I feel like that's if someone asked me like what a younger self would do, I would want them to do or that would be one of the important things. Well, that's awesome. I got to get Gabby on here. I got to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, you should. Hmm. Yeah. She would love this. Do you journal? Yeah. Uh, I've been doing it for the past, I think three years. Um, okay. And it's it's just full of all these these thoughts and, and research and arguments and uh, this this synthesizing of the great ideas of history and 
trying to see which ones I agree with and which ones I don't agree with and understanding why I don't and mm. what reasons I have for each one and then using that as a means to like um, introspect on myself and say why do I have these certain ideas or morals or values that disagree with this thought and is it is it a valid one does it have good justification for it is it logically sound mm-hmm. um so i i've at, like absolutely love journaling and um try to do it at least once a day uh and i find it it's it's very very helpful when i'm reading a book oh yeah because uh, I, I i find so much of the time i read a book i get to the end of it and then someone asked me a question about it and i'm like um it's it's about, uh, you know, just like DNA. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's cool. <laughs> and like actually writing it down, um, like it helps me organize it better in my mind where now I can go to, I, I have the chapters organized and I can say, oh, actually that's a good, that's a point that Jimmy Metzl made in chapter 10 uh, about, about the bioethics of it. And I'm like, oh, wow that's so much easier to recall now because I, I have them in these big buckets that are, I've written down. And so right. I, yeah, I could go on uh, for days talking about the benefits of journaling. Yeah. That's why, uh, that's, yeah, that's why book clubs are so great because book clubs are a way for people to, uh, to express themselves uh, in a group setting using a, a story or a common book as a medium. Uh, mm-hmm. that's something that this illness narrative class that I did the death talk podcast for, that's basically what that was. It was like a class that essentially was a book club with a little bit more intensity to it. Cause it was an actual class, but that was the benefit that I took from it. I just enjoyed reading stuff and then talking about it with my classmates. I have another podcast idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or maybe not a podcast idea, but just a, a recurring, recurring hangout meeting that we could set up. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, people yeah. do that. Like, especially now I think book clubs, virtual book clubs have like totally taken off. Gabby has a couple. Um, I've met tons of people who do them. It's, it's so great. And it helps you hold, it helps hold yourself a little accountable for your books too. It's if you you know, have a meeting in a month, you're probably more likely to get to that book rather than just putting it off until whenever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Have you found that journaling has allowed you to synthesize synthesize your thoughts and ideas and help you to move towards more of the the person that you want to be or aspire to be in order to give back to your community and to to help people? Definitely. Definitely. It's just there's too much in your brain to sort it all out in your brain. Writing it out singing it out, painting it out, whatever you do to express your feelings and your thoughts it is such a valuable exercise because you, you're you laying bare the, uh, the contents of your mind in some way. And putting that out in some medium allows you to interact with it in a way that you can't when it's all in your brain, right? And it's so, so, it's such a basic idea that, I think everyone just has to come to terms with on their own. It took me a really long time to come to terms with that idea. And journaling is just one of those, one of those methods. Uh, I think that's what's at the core of art period. 
uh, is that that idea of someone expressing themselves and mm-hmm. and engaging with with uh, with some idea in in a abstract or concrete way, and that that's what why art is so important and so valuable for for me. Journaling is is one version of that. Art is the act of engaging with abstract ideas. I like that definition. Yeah. It allows you to see what you think about it or how you feel about it Mm -hmm. from a third person perspective after doing it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't know what the the quote was, but I always think about something I heard, which is, I don't know what I think until I see what I say. Uh, I like that. Like, really really basic but still uh something that i've always thought about when i when i think about expression and reflection well alex you're gonna have the opportunity to listen to what you say and see what you think about what you said um yeah right now uh this is the this is the podcast we've done it i I think this is a a good place to end Um, nice I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, this was a, a great conversation. Um, you've done a, a lot of uh, thinking, and I, I appreciate your answers that, that you um, eloquently described here. Uh, <laughs> thanks. So, yeah, this is fun. Thanks again, Alex. Uh, I am hitting the off button right now. All right, so Alex has left the building, and it is now just me left to give the closing remarks. So I have uh, three thoughts that I want to get into. Um, The first one is the reverse orphanage. So in these last three episodes, there's been a reoccurring theme of how integral parents are in the shaping of self. We saw the results of a reserved parenting style, the results of an optimistic parenting style, and the results of a high-achieving, humorous, and social parenting style. Uh, Now, I know it's obvious, it's common knowledge that parents have a big impact on the development of their child, but really, how conscious is each person of the magnitude that their parents have contributed to their values, beliefs, and thoughts? How many of those beliefs are valuable and helpful versus negative and harmful? What type of environment did your parents create? Were they even conscious of what they were doing? It seems very important to think about the environment that existed for each person when they were growing up, and I mean really understand it, because this huge chunk of what each person defines as their true self may not have even been crafted by their own selves. Did anybody get to pick their parents, their environments, where they grew up? Did any child have a say in this? Of course not, right? No. So. Now, naturally, my mind goes to this idea of some unrealistic orphanage where a child is scrolling through a catalog of happy couples trying to figure out which set of parents they want to be raised by. It's quite the uh, interesting alternate reality, and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand on this world a little bit somewhere else. Um, well, anyway, on to my, my second thought, uh, the optimized chameleon. So a major theme of this podcast was goals, and I think the first half of this podcast is how to achieve the goal of finding out what your best true self is. The main strategy that Alex used was the chameleon strategy, 
He was very social and found himself in many diverse communities that had different values and behaviors. In a way, he tested out all these different ways of being until he found a way of being that surpassed all the rest. It's like going to a Froyo shop where they let you taste all the flavors before you're able to pick the one that you want. It's quite the effective decision-making strategy. That then got me thinking about decision theory and optimal stopping theory. In mathematics, there's a well-studied problem called the secretary problem or the marriage problem. I'll switch it up here and try to explain it in terms of figuring out what your true self is. So here's the problem. Say you have 100 years to live and you start off as a blank slate with no values. From the day you were born, you have the ability to adopt the values of anyone you interact with. But in order to adopt their values, you must give up any old values that you had. So as an example, you adopt the value of confidence from your dad. You live with that value and you rate it, you you think about how good it is for you until you meet someone with the value of humor. So then you ditch the confidence value and you try out this value of humor. And now that you've tried these two values, you can compare them and think about which one is better. So your goal now throughout life is to try and select the value that you must keep for the rest of your life. You are trying to select the value that is the best and also maximize the amount of time you live with that value. It's impossible to know which value is best unless you have sampled them all, but it would take your entire life to sample them all. So how do you know when to pick? Is there anything that can help you do this? Um, and it's a, it's actually been solved mathematically um, in order to optimize this decision. Uh, there, there's a proof online that you can look up, but the answer is to search for 33 years and try all the different values that you can. And then once you've done 33 years to adopt the value, the, to adopt the next value that you find that is better than anything that you found in those 33 years. I, I, I kind of, I think that's pretty interesting to have this chameleon strategy for 33 years and then find out who your, or adopt who your true self is after that point. So that's the second one. On to the third one, the art of art. So again, in this podcast, we have encountered the idea of using different tools to understand who we are at the core, meditation, journaling, and I guess coming on this podcast have been the main tools so far discussed uh, in the episodes that I've done. In this episode with Alex, uh, he made this great point about the temporal nature of reflection. Trying to watch your thoughts from a third-person perspective as they go racing by in real time is really hard. It's like trying to read the license plates on the highway of oncoming cars. It's really hard to to do unless you're really paying attention. Um, But once you get it on some persistent medium, it becomes much easier to interact with. I I don't know what I think until I see what I say. That's the quote, yeah. I, I really like that that quote. Um, maybe there's something peculiar uh, about me, um, but I, I'm fascinated with the thoughts and ideas and rationalizations that come about from this pink matter inside of my skull. Uh, so I want to write down the exact language that is going on inside of my mind so I can see what I think. And for me, the most comfortable language to engage with these thoughts is written and spoken English. 
But there are other ways of accessing the stream of consciousness and putting them in persistent mediums. I think about uh, freestyling or singing randomly to some instrumentals or having a song in the background and changing the lyrics and while the song is playing, um, especially when you when you go in without a plan and you get stuck and you fumble around and your inner thoughts kind of make their way to the forefront. And it's really fun to interact with them afterwards um, and, and see what you came up with. Uh, but that that's still in the realm of the spoken word. Uh, you're still expressing these thoughts in English. Um, but I'm curious about other languages. And I, and I don't mean uh, like Russian or German or, or Chinese. Um, I, I mean uh, other creative languages like painting or playing an instrument. Uh, when learning about musical theory, I was I was kind of surprised, but I kind of felt like I knew it already that um, different tones could evoke different emotions. Um, you know, like movies definitely take advantage of it. Like if you're watching The Shining, um, you can instantly recognize that the, the layered strings that they play uh, are really used to create this sense of suspense. Or like in Lord of the Rings, um, for The Shire, the, the music is very like, light and whimsical uh and peaceful um and even even getting down like to the core triads of music the major tones they have these positive uh emotional connotations and minor chords have these negative emotional connotations so uh being skilled in these languages allows you to recognize them but also to express express emotions if like you say you just sit down at a piano and just start riffing um it's kind of like a, a way to identify emotions without being conscious of it or putting words to it um but that's just emotions does it go deeper than that can you can you use creative artistic expression um to figure out more than just emotions i feel like you can but i don't have any examples it, it has this, this special quality that it persists, but how do you extract that important information out of art? And what is the difference between experiencing art and creating art? Is like, if you create art, do you experience it after you create it? And be, are you completely separated from it? How, how does that dynamic play out? And then, what is art even? Um, what is what is this, this word that's thrown around all the time? Is there a way to actually put a definition to it? Um, I don't think I have the answers to these questions yet. Um, I'm just asking them now. Um, but that's not going to stop me from looking for them. Um, so I'm going to continue this journey on the next episode. <laughs>